good to be back with you again. We're going to continue our walk through Romans as we begin chapter 6 with one another and what quite possibly might be the freakiest face you've ever seen slowly coming onto the screen here. But you'll see in a moment why it applies so well. Last week, Paul said that where sin abounds, grace hyperabounds, it overabounds. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, wherever the high water mark of sin is in your life, it's not like the, the grace of God, if you've sinned five pounds, the grace of God is going to cover five and a half pounds. It's that wherever the high water mark of, of failure and sin is in your life, the grace of God floods the world. But now Paul is going to um, anticipate multiple objections to what he's teaching. And that's what we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says this, What shall we say then? If grace abounds where sin, overabounds where sin abounds, sin abounds, that sounds like sin abun. And now I'm hungry. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, God forbid, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know, a better way of saying, you guys know better. Do you not know? How do you not know? I know that you know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too walk in newness of life. Now there's a lot of poetic language there. So let's unpack this together, but it's very important that you don't hear from me, but that you hear from the Word of God. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you And I thank you for the opportunity to submit ourselves to your truth, your word. Father, what is truth without love? And what is love without truth? You are love. Father, I feel great pressure during this season from those who want to me to teach more than what your word says or less than what your word says. And I feel the tension in my own heart. Father, it is my desire to teach simply the text and what you have said. Father, I don't want to be on the right of your will or the left of your will. I want to be in your will. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make us new creations more and more in your image. Father, we know that you did not die on the cross simply to save us from hell, but to be transformed into your image. Forgive us for making it less. Father, I confess my sins, of which I have many, And I thank you for your grace. And I pray this and I ask this 
in your son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. amen. All right, cool. You are dead in your sins. Now, if any of you grew up in the church long enough, you've probably heard this a thousand times. You're dead to sin. You're dead from your sins. But if you're honest, and, and I'm honest, even though we've heard this a thousand times, how many here feel that you are dead to sin. And what I mean by that is that sin no longer, you you just walk through life and here comes in temptation and it doesn't even move your needle. It doesn't flicker you. And you look at temptation and you say, sorry, dead to you. Has that been your experience at all? What's your answer? Of course not. What does it mean to be dead in your sin? Maybe you feel a lot like the cartoon from Mary Chambers that that says this. Well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I have felt faint to it from time to time. That's kind of where I'm at. I've had that in my life. This cartoon captures what many of us, if not all of us, feel in this room today. Paul says you're dead to your sin. You have died to your sin. Yet I think most of us would say, I don't feel very dead to sin. What Paul means here when he says, Paul means it when he says that here. In fact, he's going to say it one way or another in Romans chapter 6. He's going to say it in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, and verse 13. He's going to say that we are dead to sin. So if you find that I'm being a little repetitive today and next week, it's not that I'm being repetitive, but the Lord wants to reinforce this in our lives. But why does Paul say this? Why does Paul say this? We must remember that last week Paul got done saying where sin abounds, grace hyperabounds all the more. So Paul anticipates a major objection that is going to come. Paul, what you are teaching is that we need to do away with the law of God. By law of God, we just need to get away from the, the commandments that, the law, the God, that God has given us in his word. And they don't matter anymore. After all, if the law of God, the commands of God, makes sin abound, meaning we become aware of our sin and we trespass in them, and where sin abounds, and and Jesus' grace abounds all the more, here it is, why worry about sinning at all? Why not just sin when we want to, so that the glorious grace of Jesus can be seen even more in our lives. Paul anticipates this heretical application from a doctrinal truth, and he confronts it. He says this, what shall we say to such a misapplied application to what God's word says? Which, by the way, is not isolated to this time. If there's one thing I struggle with more than anything else, it's what does God's word say? And then I want to take my application and rise it to the level of what God's word says. And that is that it should be avoided at all costs. I want to focus on the word then here. You see it right there in the beginning of the text. Paul is transitioning from salvation to sanctification. In fact, you'll see it in the words lived, live in sin, continue in sin. 
He's going to trans, trans, transition from salvation to sanctification. And if you're rather new here, these are fancy words that simply mean he's going to transition from how we are saved, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. Repent from your sins, how we are saved. And he's going to transition into how the saved live their lives. Sanctification. You see, preaching salvation by faith alone, while biblical and true, presents unwanted ideas and dangers in our lives. In that many that will claim that, I'm sorry here, in that many will claim faith in Jesus Christ, yet believe they can live however they want. We can live however we want. Hence the words, are we to continue in sin? I'll just ask for grace. I'll do what I want, and I'll just ask for grace. One poet summarized this heretical application of God's grace by saying this, and I think it's up there. I like to commit sin, and God likes to forgive my sins. This is a beautiful relationship. How many here have ever seen the trappings of that in your life? Amen? We see, okay, none of you. Just me, all right? Some of us unconsciously live this way. I'll just ask for forgiveness and do what I want. Because finish this sentence, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than what? Permission. So I'll just abuse the grace of God. So what is Paul saying here? Paul says to such an application, what shall we say then? This is a statement of unbelief. This is a statement, this would be like me today if someone came up to me and said something that was absolutely unimaginable, I would just go, <laughs> that's what Paul is saying there. Write that down in your notes, all right? <laughs> what in the world do you say to that? There is no words to such a contemptible application to the grace of God. He's speechless. So he rhetorically adds to it, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? What is Paul saying here? Well, the answer is found in the word continue in sin. The word continue in sin has the idea of habitual persistence. You see, it's not that a believer can't sin. Of course, how many here can say, I still sin from time to time? If you can do that, just say the word sinner. Anyone at all? We all do it. We all fail. Now, see, it's not that a believer can't occasionally fall into sin or, or yield to temptation, as every Christian does at times. The idea here is that of intentional, willful sinning as a pattern of life. I'm going to do this whether it's right or not. I'm going to be apathetic to the things of God, and I don't care. I am choosing to live for self. That's what that word continue means. Hence, you add in the words, in sin, all right, to continue in a pattern of habitual sin. No true believer, no true believer, let me say this emphatically, there is no such thing as a true believer who intentionally and willfully remains in habitual sin in life and says, I'm just going to do it and I don't care. The scripture teaches that no person can receive new life in Christ and continue in their old way of living. Now we're going to fail. We're going to fall. That's why it's called progressive sanctification. To grow in it. We're all in a different place in our journey. But we're growing towards Christ. 
Yeah, how many of us have been told that you can have salvation and then just look like the world? How many of us have told, repeat after me, pray this prayer, think these things and agree to these things, and then live however you want? Paul gives a very clear answer to such an unthinkable, heretical position. In fact, he says, far from it. The Greek here is meganito. Now, Paul's not saying, I don't think I like that. I don't think, you know, I would shy away from that. Paul is given the strongest idiom of rejection the Greek language can possibly offer. He is saying that such an, an argument is, is, is forbidden by God. It is an absolutely abhorrent idea to even suggest that God's grace permits us to habitually and purposely live in sin. Henceforth, he says the words... Shall we who die to sin, now grab this, still, there it is, that habitual, still live, there it is, in it, like that pig right there. I want to follow these words by answering a question that every single one of us in this room has, including me. In fact, I'm not going to say including me, I'm going to say especially me. I do not get up here and preach that because I've I've come to some pedestal and I'm waving a flag on the mountaintop and say, if you could somehow obtain Brett Boomsma's status, you'll get there. Let me tell you, I'm on the side of the mountain just like you. These words answer the question that every one of us in this room has. If as a Christian I am saved by grace, if I am dead to sin, then why am I still tempted? Why do I still sin? Here's this. Why do I still sin and like it? Why do I still sin and enjoy it and then repent, knowing full well I may do it again? The answer is found in the words, live in it. Added to the words, continue in it. It means to habitually embrace sin and live in it and not care that you're in it. Now, I want to make a clarification here. Paul's not saying that a believer cannot sin. Paul's not saying that here. Or that we are immune to temptation. 1 John 1, Matthew chapter 6. Such a view would make the command of Jesus, the commands of Jesus unnecessary. Why would Jesus tell people, do not look lustfully on a woman unless you, you already commit adultery with her? Why would Jesus say that if we're dead to lust? How many here, men, just go ahead and raise your hand. How many here are dead to lust? Anyone at all? Women? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Why are we told not to steal if we are dead to the temptation of stealing? Why are we told not to have any corrupt communication come out of our mouths if we are incapable of doing it? We're dead to those things. When Paul says that we are dead to it, we must remember that he is applying the biblical definition of death, not our understanding of death. The biblical definition of death carries the idea of separation, not termination. Separation, not termination. That is a huge pivot point in our understanding of being dead to sin. We are separated, not terminated from the power of sin. We are separated from it. Death is separation. Spiritual separation, physical separation, eternal separation. In fact, when you die physically, you are dead. You are separated from your body. You are separated from your loved ones. But you are certainly not terminated. 
You continue to exist either in the presence of God in heaven or, here it is, separated from God in eternal damnation, which is called, ironically, the second death, the second separation eternally. When we die to sin because of our faith in Christ, we are separated from the power of living in sin. That's the key. We are, separ- we are no longer slaves to it. We are separated. Just because I was once a slave to sin, I have been emancipated by it, and so have you, and we are no longer under the power of sin. And while sin may still give us orders, we have the ability to say, not I that live, but who lives in me, church? Who? Christ lives in me. I say no to that through the power of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was Martin Luther that said every time he was tempted, he'd say, Satan, get away from me. I've been baptized. I'm separated from that. You have no ownership over me. If as a Christian, how can we say that sin is okay? When we die to sin because of our faith in Christ, we are separated from the power of living in it. In fact, let me push a little bit further. The idea that a Christian can continue to habitually and persistently and intentionally live in sin, desiring it more than Christ himself, and still be a child of God is not only unbiblical, it is irrational. Paul is saying with absolute clarity here, There is no justification without sanctification. There is no justification without sanctification. No salvation that that produces an unchanged life. Now, there is a piece here. There is a piece of me here that would like to move forward at this time. Does he need... (laughs) He doesn't like what I'm saying, does he? No, that's all right. Most don't. There's a piece of me here that would like to move to the next thought. But I want to pause here because there is a heretical application that has escaped into the heart of the contemporary church. And it has escaped into our church, into it. And frankly, we are not immune to it. And I want to be clear, neither am I. Neither am I. And the heresy I speak of is drawn from a biblical truth. Do you know that you can take biblical truth and apply it errantly and we think oh look at my application it comes from that that don't make your application right grab this here this heresy i speak of is drawn from a biblical truth we can draw heretical or wrong conclusions and deductions from biblical truth and here is one such case and it's everywhere within the american church here it is first the biblical truth is this salvation through faith alone. Salvation by faith alone. This is a pillar of the Christian faith. It is untouchable. This is where you would separate fellowship from someone else who denies this pillar of the truth. The Bible teaches emphatically and clearly that salvation is by faith alone without any works. Salvation cannot be earned. Amen, church? It is a non-negotiable for the bride of Christ. Again, to clarify, one is saved by grace through faith, not of a single work. Salvation is by faith alone. This is an unmovable biblical pillar of the Bible. 
Now, what many evangelical churches within America today have they've done is they've taken this biblical truth and they've drawn a, a false conclusion or a false application from it. Which is today, since it is by grace through faith alone and not a single work, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, here is the heretical conclusion. I can have Christ and live however I want. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said this, and I really appreciated this. When it comes to our salvation, works do not count. They are filthy rags. Works do not count when it comes to our salvation. But that is not synonymous with saying that works don't matter. Works do matter. They just don't earn salvation. The Bible teaches this right here. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do, what's the last two words, church? To do what? To good works. If there's no good growth in Christ in your life, you might start to question whether or not you are his workmanship. Countless numbers of our children, if not ourselves, have grown up thinking that Sinful Christianity, or a better word for that is carnal Christianity, is an acceptable position within the gospel of the Bible. And I want you to hear this. It is not. It is not. That one can claim Christ while habitually living outside of him. Paul's erasing that here. He is erasing that here. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to engage your minds. I'm looking for some answers, all right? Raise your hands if you have some answers. I want to call on you so I can get them all here, all right? What are some huge sins that we sometimes wonder, can such a person be saved? What are, what are some huge sins in our lives, in people's lives? Um, let's see, Luke, what do you got? Leaving time on their microwave. All right. Thank you for taking that note. I appreciate that. Murder. murder. Ozzy, what do you got? Adultery. Adultery. Murder. Okay. Those are the only two sins. <laughs> Sexual immorality. Homosexuality. I oftentimes get questions on this. Can such a person be saved? I find the question a little off-center, if not self-serving. Here's the answer. Of course, he or she can be saved. Just as much as any other sinner can be saved. Because here it is, church, and I'm asking you to affirm this with an amen, if you believe it. Everyone, every sinner can be saved. The gospel is the power of God to effect salvation for any person. Amen? Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord, whether you are straight, whether you are gay, whether you are white, whether you're black, brown, whatever the, I'm so tired of all the categories, all can be saved through Jesus Christ. Now, with that, I want you to look at the kind of people that are saved by the gospel according to Paul in Corinthians. He says this right here. Do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral or the adulterers or the homosexuals or the thieves nor the greedy. Notice all the categories here are synonymous with one another. Nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will ever inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. 
He's writing a letter. You all were once these things, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of God. Let me ask a better question. Let me ask a better question. Can you or our children who are raised in the church, pray to prayer and say they believe in Jesus, yet their minds are not renewed through the word of God. They, they have no desire for the bride of Christ, never seek the kingdom of God, never grow in their faith, never orient their hearts towards God's pleasure, who live their lives no differently than the world, who doesn't actively seek the glory of God. Can such a person be saved? Paul says, Paul says, Paul says, no. In fact, he goes a little bit further. He says, God forbid it. Such a thought. You see, the point is not which sinner can be saved. Look at that list. We will all find ourselves on it. The point is not which sinner can be saved, for the answer is all of them. But which sinner can continue to embrace sin habitually while claiming Christ? And the answer is none of them. None of them. Friends, grace is not a license to live the way you want. Rather, it is a means in which to walk away from a life of sin into a completely new life in Christ. Hence the word, so that we may walk in the newness of life. Not the old life, the new life. The word walk here indicates exactly what it feels like it's saying. It implies long, steady, gradual process. Not of sinless perfection, but rather righteous pursuit. You see that? Righteous pursuit to move increasingly in one direction. A direction where we sin less and less because of our love for Christ grows more and more. Because if you love me, obey my commands. They will know you are mine by your fruit and how you love one another. To sin less and less and glorify God more and more. Again, it is progression, not perfection. With this in mind, are we really going to argue that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and changes our heart, but that changed heart will never change the way we live? Is that really our argument? God forbid. Let it not be. There are no words. Salvation, and I like this here. Salvation does not produce the fullness of moral perfection, but it does initiate it. It does initiate it. Jesus will increasingly become the authority of our lives and the object of our heart's desire. If you honestly evaluate your heart, evaluate your, 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 your salvation to make sure that your election is sure. As we evaluate our lives, is Jesus increasingly and more and more becoming the desire of our lives? Or just a therapeutic rabbit's foot? R.C. Sproul nails it again when he says this, We cannot receive Christ as our Savior without the same time bending a knee to Him as our Lord. 
Critics of such a statement will try to condemn the teaching by calling it lordship salvation, saying by claiming Jesus must be Lord, then we are somehow adding works to salvation. So let me be clear here. No works are being added to salvation. No works can be added to salvation. But truth be said, salvation will always produce works. It will always produce sanctification. What critics called lordship salvation, the Bible calls the gospel. And we may say, all right, there's a lot here. We have all these terms floating around in our heads. Salvation is by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Works do not save, but we are saved unto good works. Carnal Christianity, lordship salvation. What does the Bible say? Let us not fall to the left and let us not fall to the right. What does the text of the word of God say? I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. In fact, I'm going to close with it. I'm going to close with it. And I want to make it as simple as possible, but not more simple than it is. Allow me to illustrate this with a picture I got from my studies this week of a circle. All right? Now, that circle represents your life, your heart, your cardia, the seat of who you are. The circle represents your life and your heart. Jesus is going to represent salvation. The throne is going to represent the authority, the desire of your heart. And the stick figure is going to represent, anyone got a guess? You and me. You and me. So let's look at what an unsaved person's life looks like. Self is on the throne. Self is on the throne Jesus is not invited into the heart. Jesus is not invited into the life. He is rejected. He is, he is turned away from the scenario. There is no faith, no grace. We would all agree that such a pick clearly describes an unsaved person who is carnal and sinful. After all, Christ is not in their life still under the wrath of God, still needs to accept God's wonderful gift of grace and mercy. Now I want to move to the next one, which I would call the unsaved religious, which represents many, 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 many within the church of Jesus Christ today. Where we invite Christ into the circle, we invite Christ into our lives, but we remain on the throne. We remain the desire. Our desires are, are, are in control and not Jesus Christ. My friends, this is not salvation. This is carnal Christianity. God is there when you need him to help you feel better. But you are on the throne. You still live for self. Here it is. Jesus is baked into your culture. Jesus is invited into the culture that is your life, but he is in no way the king of your life. Contrary to generations of easy believism that is taught in the church today, this is as unconverted and as lost as the first example. Hence the words we see in the word of God, depart from me, I never knew you. But Jesus, I invited you into my culture. I even talked about you. I prophesied about you. You were on my lips. I went to church. Depart from me, you were never known to me. I was just part of your culture. I like what Steve DeMann said this morning. We are not to be fans of Christ. This is a fan of Christ. We are to be followers 
of Christ. How do you follow someone if they are not your Lord? And then we have a final one, which is the true gospel. Jesus is on the throne. He's invited into the heart. And he is on the throne. We are in our lives, but we are followers of him. We are submissive to him. Sure, there's times where we want to kick him off the throne and climb up there by ourselves. But in that moment, we repent. And we say, you want to know what? Jesus, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm dead to sin. I'm no longer in the power of it. And you are the Lord of my life, the Savior of my soul. Here it is. Finish this verse. It is no longer that I that sit on the throne of my life, but Christ in my life. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel. Friends, there is no such thing as a purposefully, continually, persistently, habitual, carnal Christian. I want you to look at all three. Which one best pictures your life right now? Which one best pictures your life right now? When I was growing up, I would have been the middle one. Jesus was my moralistic, therapeutic God. And that was it. Which one describes you? Is it time to be saved? As my father always said, if you've come to the cross and nothing has changed in your life, then nothing has changed in your life. My friends, the Bible knows nothing of claiming a salvation in Christ absent from his lordship. I fear that many in the church have been told and sold carnal Christianity that leaves a person unchanged rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ where the old goes away and we become new creations in Jesus Christ. Now many of us might struggle with this, but let's just allow the words of the Holy Spirit to speak. Let's allow the words of the Holy Spirit to speak because it does not matter what I say. Do not listen to a word I say. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Transliterated from our study this morning. What shall we say to these circles? What do we say? There's no words for them. Shall we continue to live habitually bracing sin so that grace may abound like this middle circle? God forbid! Meganito, it's not possible. It doesn't exist. It's a lie from Satan. How shall we who died separated, freed from the power of sin, choose to obey it? Purify us, O God. Purify us, O God. Church, growing in your love and obedience to Christ is not a possible byproduct of true salvation. It is the purpose of salvation. It's the purpose of salvation. Jesus didn't die just to rip your feet out of heat. But to transform you into the image of his son. Oh, be holy.
as I am holy. There's no such thing as a divine life that has no divine living. And to tell ourselves of our ch- and our children anything different is not only self-serving, it is damning. Friends, grace does not excuse sloppy living. God is committed to your holiness. Tonight, we'll dig deeper into this. Paul will double down in verses 3 and 4 and unpack how carnal Christianity is just another name, just another coat, just another layer of wax on a lost life. And we will unpack the rest of this passage and then see how much it applies to our life. Friend, if you're the middle circle, repent. Turn away from it. Get off the throne. Bend your knee. For every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is what? You want to do it while you're still alive. Before you're separated. Father, purify us. Make us pure. Make us chaste. You did not pull us out of the alley to remain a harlot. But to be purified. Start with me. Father, we love you. You are our groom. It's in your name I pray this for your glory. Amen. I love you, church. You are dismissed.